So hello everyone, welcome to our, our digital pandemic interview series. Today we have uh, Professor Kirsten Oster, who is the Gladys Lewis Fox Professor of English at Rice University in Houston, Texas, uh, where she's a media scholar, a health researcher, and a technology analyst. She's the author of two books, Medical Visions, Producing the Patient Through Film, Television, and Imaging Technologies. I think that came around in 2013 uh, with Oxford University Press, and mm -hmm. Cinematic Prophylaxis, Globalization, and Contagion in the Discourse of World Health uh, that came out with Duke University Press in 2005. And I guess all these books are back in circulation and in conversation currently as people are beginning to read and go back to these texts as a sort of timely revision. And she's also written extensively on health data, privacy, and new media in the medical humanities. Kirsten Noster has also completed a Master of Public Health degree at the Houston School of Public Health. Her MPhil research focused on the use of uh, information and communication technologies in end-of-life care. She's the founder and director of the Medical Humanities Program, 2016, I guess it began, uh, and the Medical Futures Lab from 2012, which broadly aimed to educate and imagine the interdisciplinary futures of medicine in the wake of changing definitions of humanity and technology. Thank you, Professor, for speaking to us, and I guess we have a lot to discuss, so we'll jump straight in. One of the questions that we wanted to begin uh, by asking is that much of your work, both as you speak with the public, but also as you write, has been to talk about and centralize and focus around how medical medicine itself is pretty much dependent on media technologies and the ways in which it has been shaped by visual technologies. Anything from the beginning of photography to MRI to any form of imaging that kind of scaffolds the way in which we understand our bodies, doctor-patient relationships and so on and so forth. So how do you think uh, the imaging of virus that has taken so much of public imagination in the present has been shaped by these technologies? On a larger and a more theoretical scale, what does it mean to even visualize a virus, considering it is imperceptible to begin with? Right. Well, I mean, this, is the, this question is kind of at the heart of most health communication in infectious disease outbreaks. And that's certainly true of the moment that we're in right now. I do remember in the very early days of uh, awareness that the, that the pandemic was spreading, you know, beyond China and to many parts of the world, we saw so many images of the virus that were computer generated images, basically. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so they themselves were already artifacts once removed. It wasn't something you could see if you looked through a microscope. But the other thing that we saw a lot in those early days was images of people in China. Yeah. Right. So already from the very beginning, to visualize the virus also meant to visualize the bodies that were associated with the spread of the virus. And this is something that we've seen throughout, you know, through over a hundred years of, of, of infectious disease imagery or contagion media, you could say. Yes. So it's, it's rarely the case that visualizing the virus itself purely in the kind of scientific modality that that doesn't then quickly become attached to social and cultural formations that almost always, especially when we're talking about global epidemics or pandemics, they almost always have some dimension of xenophobia, of racism, or of some other kind of stigmatization of the body with the virus. And, you know, this is something that we've seen over and over again, and we certainly saw it with COVID. But I think the thing 
the thing to recognize is that there is this compulsion to visualize the virus because exactly of what you said in your introduction, which is that we cannot see them with the naked eye. Right. So if only we could, imagine how easy it would be to manage this whole situation, right? So the whole practice of public health from the beginning was to try to train people to imagine that they could see things that they couldn't, mm -hmm. so that they would look at the world through a particular lens and then modify their behavior accordingly. And, and what we've seen over time, what scholars have kind of exposed by analyzing health media is that embedded in this mode of visualizing the world through the public health lens are all of these kind of pathologizing mechanisms so that the virus itself is never just the virus itself. Yeah, thank you for that. I think that it ties really well to a lot of the things that have been really present in a lot of our minds, specifically with when the virus is not simply the virus. Like we talk about COVID, you know, I think about this, um, this language of COVID as when it was first kind of spreading out this language of being the great equalizer and how quickly, you know, that kind of umbrella term for it fell away. As we realized in the US, you know, these lines fall a lot on race and socioeconomic status, that being a bigger determiner than like everyone all together we're in this. So I think what you're saying speaks to that very well. So kind of going back to some of these ideas of how media and medical technology relates, we'll come back to some of the more um, social and cultural questions a little bit later in the interview. For a multitude of reasons, this COVID-19 pandemic is being called an unprecedented historical event and therefore something that exceeds our comprehension or something that like culturally we are struggling to make sense of. So we were wondering what are the media apparatuses which doctors are relying on in this unprecedented state? And by that we mean how are doctors using media to try and make sense of this pandemic in kind of this soup of uncertainty? Yes, so this is a really interesting question because it really gets at the ways that medical visualizations cross back and forth between clinical and what I sometimes like to call meta-clinical spaces. So, you know, the extent to which images that are created outside of hospitals, say, shape the ways that people see and think and produce images inside of hospitals and vice versa. Yes. So, so there have been a couple of interesting instances where specific kinds of medical imaging technologies have been brought to bear in this pandemic and they've kind of uh, come and gone in terms of the the sense of their efficacy or importance. So for example, there was a little while there where chest x-rays that showed a particular kind of constellation of, uh, of symptoms in the lungs seemed like perhaps an effective way of diagnosing the virus at a time when tests were scarce and we and we and doctors were trying to figure out whether there were additional ways that we could intervene that kind of went beyond the sense that we don't have anything to work with and and so that so there was a moment when that was happening and um you know there in different disease outbreaks there's often a dimension of a particular imaging modality that comes to the fore, like with Zika virus, it was the CT scan of the brain. 
Right. Right. And that, in terms of the medical imaging, that was the kind of um, the sort of decisive moment of empirical evidence. Um, the thing about the CT scan in the Zika virus outbreak is that that also traveled well culturally in the sense that the CT scan itself um, is easy to interpret because the uh, affordances of that representation have been designed to look like the shape of a head and then to be able to see inside of that the shape of the brain and color is usually added so that you can see for example where a brain isn't filling up the brain cavity and and that's where and that was then the sign of microcephaly which was associated with zika virus right so in in contrast to that in covid the lung x-ray was not at all comprehensible to anyone but experts it, it got out into public media but it never really became the same kind of emblematic image like the ct scan did in zika because it didn't have that kind of iconic quality. You could tell it was a chest X-ray, but beyond that, like what parts dark, what parts light, what does that mean? What is that showing us? It, it, it didn't translate well, it didn't travel well. So I think since then, we've seen that, the, that a lot of the kind of medical imagery that you might usually associate with an infectious disease outbreak or any kind of disease outbreak. Um, instead, what we have seen is the emphasis on the data dashboards and the mapping. Right. right? So these are not clinical tools, right? Like, like no one in a, in a hospital emergency room is going to pull up you know, the Johns Hopkins COVID dashboard to, to somehow help the patient. Yet, in my view, the, the kind of as you as you said in your question the the sort of exceeding our comprehension dimension of this pandemic is one where it seems that there is no um single bodily representation that can in any way encompass the multiplicity of registers that people are experiencing this pandemic on and so, and, and this also actually is quite reflective of what we're continuing to learn about the constellation of symptoms that go with COVID, which is that, you know, it could be neurological, it could be digestive, it could actually affect your feet, right? It could, it could cause you to, to have a stroke. It could affect your lungs too. It could affect your entire body and so there's no single representation of that, either clinically or metaclinically. And I think because of that, we keep going back to these, these meta dashboards that represent for us on a kind of population scale um, what's happening, but are not at all adequate to represent individual experience or even individual kind of clinical states. Right. So maybe just to kind of follow up, I think the follow up question that we had uh, was pretty uh, much on the similar terrain is the fact that if the virus cannot be imaged slash imagined in a singular iconic form uh, and has to be kind of composed as a sort of a piecemeal archaeological kind of a fractal format, as you're saying, some 
sometimes it's the x-ray that could speak sometimes it's a ct scan or sometimes it's these vast data visualizations that could speak on a population scale my question is how do how do these images transform the ways in which the virus or the covid-19 pandemic is being understood by the public if there is vis-a-vis -vis the ct scan for the zika virus that kind of emblematizes or becomes the iconic image for for the pandemic uh, for that virus there is a different ways in which people would themselves understand as their perceptions to risk or uh, perceptions to access to health and infrastructure so how does the very quality of imaging or the sort of this dispersed form of imaging transform the ways in which people perceive themselves as living through the pandemic yes well so um i think that a huge fallacy was established early on really at the outset of the of the pandemic phase of this pandemic um which which has to do specifically with the visual image of the the global map of contagion right and how that relates to conceptions of the role of travel right so the extent to which we and you know i will say global maps of, of contagion have been with us again for a hundred years you know more like that's it's it's a it's an epidemiological tool it makes sense on a certain level the problem is that it led to these travel bans and not just travel bans but a specific set of screening questions right. that that were the gateway to whether or not anyone could be tested for COVID. Right. If you remember early on, right, people couldn't get a COVID test unless they answered yes to a variety of questions, which included either travel history or exposure to someone with a travel history, as right. well as a few other things like symptoms or the other person being symptomatic. And what this did was it produced a false sense of security on the one hand, right? And also a distraction from the reality of community spread. So it, while also reinforcing the xenophobic framing of the spread of contagion. So, you know, the extent to which we still have this kind of preoccupation with these dashboards, which always have a map, right? Yeah. And then they may also have different kinds of tables and, and those sorts of things, but, but there's, there's almost always a map. It really reinforces the idea that travel is a threat that can be contained by reinforcing borders. And so then that really goes to this idea that there is an external threat to an internally pure nation state, community, whatever, because it operates on multiple scales too. So it's not always like a sort of national body or national boundaries, but certainly in the case of the United States and building on this administration's emphasis on borders and excluding the idea of the undesired others, you know, that all of that rhetoric was of course playing into this as well. But it produced this situation where instead of of paying attention to the ways that the virus may already be spreading and focusing in on amping up testing, ramping up testing. Instead, it, it, it shifted all the focus to China and to people traveling from China, right? Which just completely diverted the, 
the, the attention that should have been focused on the reality of the ways that global flows work and the ways that the impossibility of truly preventing bodies from moving in a way that would actually contain disease. Yeah, that's like a really perfect example. I know I was thinking my family is all in Washington state, which when it was one of the early hotspots, mm -hmm. that was a problem, you know, like you could not get a test in the state unless you had been to China. Right. Um, and obviously that was a big way that when they had all of those really horrific um, nursing home outbreaks right at the beginning, that was a huge way they missed screening that because these people had not traveled. So they were like, oh, they're not, yeah, they're not at risk. And then the virus, you know, went like wildfire through all of those, those different homes. So I think that that was a really perfect example. Um, and a lot of what you were talking about gets to kind of our next question, which is kind of getting to this tension that you've been describing in kind of your last two answers between the individuality of patient care during an epidemic and also the necessity of collecting or necessity is also something that we can debate, but this fixation on population scale epidemiological data and what it means to create an epidemiological map. And so we were wondering maybe if you could talk a little bit more about the tension between these kind of two medical uh, competing arenas during a pandemic, but also what we're seeing that epidemiological data is fundamentally missing. Like one thing that comes to mind as an example is this idea of temporality, like epidemiological data, especially in a disease that has a really long latency period, struggles to account for that. Because how do you represent that in a map? You know, how do you represent those two weeks where you don't know if a person is symptomatic or not, when you're making like this, you know, the John Hopkins COVID tracker you brought up is a great example of that. How do you represent movement? How do you represent time? So maybe just your thoughts on that as well. Yes, it's, and I mean, just to continue with what you were saying also, the oftentimes those, um, those data visualizations will have a category that is recovered. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. But what is the temporality of that? I mean, how do you actually mark that? It's mostly what I've heard about is people who never feel recovered, you know, weeks to months later or recovered may be very relative and, and not at all kind of to anything that they could call a sort of, you know, whatever their previous state of health might have been. So, yeah, so, so that's a, that's a huge challenge. And, and this also relates to the question of, of testing and sort of false positives and false negatives and, and the problem that data in the, in the context of this pandemic is being treated as very binary. So uh, a, a test result is either positive or negative right. when in fact we're learning more and more about the presence of virus that may not be contagious but may produce a positive result or the, the presence of virus that is not caught because people are tested too early. There, there are all of these gray areas that are simply not captured by the binary of positive negative, right? Yeah. So already there's a kind of inherent problem to depending on those kinds of understandings of what's happening in the world. Um, this is true also when you're trying to represent the data around 
uh, hospital resources, for example, like how many beds are available, right? And they often really can't capture how many nurses are able to staff those beds, how many doctors, you know, are able to do work that isn't traditionally under the rubric of what they do as doctors because there aren't enough nurses and all of the kinds of workflow issues that, you know, it's really easy to count like how many hospitals and how many beds. It's really not easy to quantify care, right? But at the end of the day, you know, it doesn't matter how many ventilators you have if you don't have well-trained people to care for the people on the ventilators and to know when to use them and when not to use them and everything that surrounds that. Um, so, you know, just as, as, I mean, and these are debates that people have had about the, you know, the quantified self and sort of the quantification of human experience in other realms too, not related to the pandemic, just the, that, that it really, um, looking at human experience in th solely through these kinds of binary data just really leave out a lot of, of context and a lot of nuance and all of these other things. Um, so that that it, it it's a challenge in terms of the epidemiology. It's a it's a challenge in terms of thinking about testing and the role that that plays, and it's also a challenge in the realm of um, just understanding, for example, how people's movements um, relate to incidents and to things like contact tracing. So, uh, you know, this one of the one of the ways that I've been thinking a lot about um, about about data in this context is, you know, we keep getting these reports on expected growth of an outbreak in places where people's cell phone data shows that they're starting to move around a lot more. Right. Right. And I've been really fascinated by that, first of all, because I think a lot of people are surprised that that data is available um, and kind of wonder like, oh, does that include my, myself? Like, did that, that little drive that I took yesterday across town, is that part of this, you know, is that a data point in here? And, and it, seems, um, it seems to kind of bring this question of surveillance to, to, to the fore in a way that, um, it kind of goes back to one of your earlier questions about, you know, the tension between the individual and the collective, right? Because in the context of a, of a pandemic, there's always this tension that's being debated between individual rights and the collective good, right? And that's, and that's kind of very much at the core of debates about privacy and contact tracing. And, and there's a lot that, that we could talk about around that. Um, but it also, it just, it shows you the extent to which any set of data points are always collected in an environment where choices are being made about what's being measured, right? And certain things are always being left out while other things are being included. And it's hard to capture all of those things that aren't easily quantified in a data visualization. And it's hard to communicate those things as compared to just say raw numbers, which you can then graph as going up or going down or maintaining a steady state. Um, so, you know, the, the extent to which 
the scale of this pandemic is leading to more and more reliance on large-scale data visualizations, I think the more that we go in that direction, the more we're missing in terms of the reality of what is driving the pandemic. Thank you for listening to the first part of this interview. Stay tuned for the next one.